Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university students, college students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. We're so glad that you are here. All right, so this is part two of the mission of Jesus. Bob talked about kind of the internal aspect of the mission of Jesus. Here, I'm going to talk more about the external act of mission, the external understanding of mission and evangelism, why we're so nervous about it and what we can do about it. I hope you enjoy this message. So we're going to talk about mission. Um, These texts, some of you, like maybe a year or two ago, I talked a little bit about some of the texts we're going to talk about tonight. Um, This is not a repeat sermon in case you're like, you've heard that and you're wondering. Um, There is new stuff happening, some nuanced things. But one of the things I wanted to talk about tonight, Bob talked about kind of the inward working of mission um, here, you know, close to a month ago. What I want to do tonight is talk about the, the outward nature and the outworkings of mission, and then inevitably we'll land back on how those outworkings of mission actually come back to the interior um, to change us. And so we're going to talk about evangelism or mission, or perhaps some of you grew up, in fact, Sarah used the word uh, missions. So some of us came from churches, and we, called it, we call it missions, Uh, others of us, mission, uh, whatever it is, this idea of sharing your faith, whether it's overseas or next door or sometimes even within our own home. Um, Now, this idea of sharing our faith, interestingly, is it's both um, essential to Christianity. So even people who are not Christians um, would say, we know that you are a sharing faith. Like, this is part of what it means to be a Christian. And so it's essential to Christianity, but it's also something that makes many of us feel nervous. Yes, anybody? Yes, okay, thank you. There's a few honest people here. Um, I think the idea of mission or the idea of evangelism makes us nervous for um, a couple of reasons. And the first one is that many of us, I think, feel like, oh my goodness, I even like Phil just said, I'm supposed to share my faith. But I'm like super nervous to share my faith. Is that maybe some people who you don't have to answer that? But um, you know, there's this idea. So um, I grew up with this kind of self-imposed guilt, <laughs> uh, and some of us have grown up with this. Others of us, unfortunately, grew up with others' imposed guilt about this. Um, if you're ever in this camp of like this, you have this guilt of. I should have shared my faith, and I didn't. And you, you might use the term uh, missed opportunity. I just, I didn't know. And, you know, and oftentimes I hear people talk about missed opportunities. It's like, there wasn't really anything happening. It's just like, oh my gosh, I think I'm, maybe I'm supposed to share my faith right now. Oh, it was a missed opportunity. I didn't do it. So then they have this guilt. I actually had this dream. I think it was in high school. Um, back then I took it as prophetic. Now I take it as me working through my... 
<laughs> unhealthy spirituality uh, at that time. But I had this dream that, um, that Jesus was coming back. And somehow, I don't know how, I knew that Jesus was coming back. And so I set out to go, and I'm like, I have to tell all my high school friends that Jesus is coming back, like he's coming back tonight at midnight, and I have to get out and tell them. But everywhere I would go, there would be roadblocks, like literal roadblocks, you know, um, logs across the road, and we couldn't get on, and I, and I just had this, like, growing, like the clock is ticking, midnight's coming, I can't get to my friends, I should have told them before. And so, you know, I, I woke up um, with this thing, you know, like, oh my gosh, it was prophetic. Now I really have to tell my friends. Um, but I actually, yeah, I think I was just working through my issues, to be honest. Um, because Jesus, we find, actually didn't have that type of fearful urgency, even when he knew that he was going to die. And this was shocking to me to, to realize this, um, that he was on the road, like, going through Samaritan country, which means like the religious other. And, and so he was going, facing his death. And you would think that Jesus would be spending his final few days saying like, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Everybody needs to quickly repent. Uh, but this didn't happen. So <clears throat> a few years ago, I read this book called um, Tell It Slant by Eugene Peterson. And Something that really caught my attention in that book that Peterson pointed out was this whole thing that in the book of Luke, Jesus' death and resurrection was really imminent, and he traveled on the road, but instead of like telling everybody, you have to repent, now's the time, make a decision, the time is coming, I'm going to die, instead he talked in parables the whole time. He told stories that people may or may not have understood. And this is how Jesus um, spent the remainder of his days, just telling these, like, maybe you'll understand my story, maybe you won't understand my story. Which is shocking when you, when, when you think about it. Um, so Eugene Peterson, he says this, I find it interesting, I think we have this one, yeah. I find it interesting because um, it is such a contrast, what Jesus is doing, to what so often occurs among us. He says that it is common for many of us when we become uh, more aware of what is involved in following Jesus and the urgencies, sorry, we have uh, some copy issues here on my end. So the urgencies that this involves, especially when we find ourselves in Samaritan territory, that we become more intense in our language Okay, so he's saying, you know, where things are, things are coming to an end, and when we feel this urgency, he said, we get more intense in our language. Like, oh my goodness, we got to get the message out. He said, but the very intensity of language can very well reduce our attentiveness to the people to whom we are speaking. He or she is no longer a person, but a cause. And maybe you've felt this sometimes, like when you're trying to share your faith, but it's kind of awkward, and suddenly the person goes from being a person to feeling more like a cause. They're less like a friend and more like a cause. Um, he says, impatient to get our message out, we depersonalize what we have to say in order uh, into rote phrases or programmatic formula without regard to the person we are meeting. And I think this is such an important thing that Peterson's talking about here with language that when we sometimes sense this urgency of like, oh my goodness, and it feels like, well, that's biblical, right? Well, I'm not sure. 
But this urgency to get the message out that what happens is we begin to be depersonalized in how we deal with people. And so Jesus, uh, headed toward his death, he actually paid very deep and unhurried attention to people. And at this point in my life, I, you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to actually shake my guilt, the guilt that I had imposed upon myself about evangelism, and I'm actually just trying to become more like Jesus and live into the Jesus way of talking to people about Jesus. And so some of us are afraid because we're, we're nervous to speak up, and uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. But there's a second reason I think that some of us are afraid, and this is that uh, we're not even sure it's right to talk to people of other faith, particularly people of other religions, about our faith, um, if they were to become converted. We're like, is that even ethical? So there's this fascinating change that's kind of taken place in recent years. So when I was growing up, um, it's funny, you get to my age, you start noticing things that change in the church. When I was growing up, we, had, we talked a lot more about mission or missions than we do now. Uh, we had mission Sundays, missions conventions, all these types of things. Um, and it seems like we're talking less now, but interestingly, um, I think many of us back then, we talked a lot about it, but we didn't feel actually that equipped in, like, I, I just don't know what to say, right? Um, there's an interesting thing that happened, so that we worked it out in our nightmares, <laughs> like me. Um, now it seems that even though in kind of public settings, we don't often talk about mission as much as we used to, um, research shows that actually kind of younger generations are feeling progressively more equipped to share their faith. Um, take millennials, for example. Now, I understand that most of you are younger than millennials, but just watch how things are, ch are trending generationally. So, 73%, um, this is high, of millennials feel that they can adequately respond when, when people ask them questions about their faith. So, it's amazing. Um, particularly because previous generations, only 66% um, of Gen Xers, 59% of boomers, and 56% of elders, so significantly down by the generation, right, um, felt actually equipped. But here's what's weird. Um, while millennials, for example, actually feel like equipped, like, yeah, I think I might know what to say, generally, to explain the gospel or whatever, um, they actually, almost half of millennials, 47%, <coughs> agree at least somewhat that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith, okay? So this is a study. 40, almost half of millennials, they feel equipped, but they at the same time feel like, but I'm not even sure if it's right to do this. Why would people feel like, I'm not even sure if it's right. In, in, in a word, if I'm understanding it correctly, and I think I am, uh, it's because of colonialism. So most of you know what colonialism is, uh, and most of your friends who are not Christian also know what colonialism is, and we are well uh, at attentive now to the harm that was done in the name of evangelism and in the name of mission um, through colonialism, through this agenda of trying to make other people like us in the name of the gospel. And so this idea of like, is it even right to share my faith? This is actually a really legitimate question 
Um, so if you have that question, I actually want to affirm that question because it's coming out of a, a, a healthy place, a healthy, there's a healthy skepticism. But I believe that instead of um, giving up on mission, that what we need to do is actually rethink it a little bit and we need to engage it in a healthier way. And actually, I believe the healthier way is a biblical way. Um, so as a Pentecostal, I heard a lot of preaching from the book of Acts. Uh, any Pentecostals in the room tonight? Yes, we, I figured you'd like just shout out in tongues or something, but um, just kidding. Um, so for a lot of us, we heard mission was related to um, Acts 1.8. So I grew up with this, where the, the disciples, they recall Jesus saying this. He says, and we can go to the next slide, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my, what is it? Yes, shout it out. You will be my what? Witnesses, Witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, so we have this concept called witnessing. Who has heard of witnessing before? Okay, right? Common concept. I, I think this is a good word actually, uh, witnessing. But we, what we need to do with witnessing is to take witnessing out of the clouds, like the spiritual kind of clouds, and bring it back down into the soil a little bit. Um, what does it mean to witness? So just yesterday, I was reading Ellie Wiesel's Night. This is a book probably many of you read in high school. And it's a difficult book. And Wiesel was a, a child who survived um, the concentration camps during the Holocaust. So he, he writes this book giving an account of what he went through. And, and look at what he writes. He says, I only know, because he's asking the question, like, why did, it, why did I write this book? Um, people back then didn't want to hear this stuff. Why did I even write it? He said, I only know that without this testimony, <coughs> my life as a writer or my life period would not have become what it is. That of a witness who believes that he has a moral obligation to try and prevent the enemy from enjoying one last victory by allowing his crimes to be erased from human memory. So again, he uses the word witness. This time he says this, convinced that this period in history would be judged one day. I knew that I must bear witness. Okay, so here's a question. When, when uh, Eli Wiesel uses the word witness, does he mean that he needed to go out and make something happen? He needed to kind of create something, create the, you know, the, you know whatever it is. And, and the, the answer is no. Um, he had endured the unthinkable. And so for him to be a witness simply meant that he had to give voice to what had happened. Um, so Jesus, at the end of Luke, he says this to his disciples. He says, this is what is written. The Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Uh, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he says this, you are witnesses of these things. And so I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but just stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so Jesus tells him, you'll be my witnesses about what is about to happen. And he said, what's about to happen? And he made it clear over and over. He goes, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Um, but nobody was ready to hear that, but he kept telling them over and over. And they said, you're going to be my witnesses about this. Um, and so in other words, what, what Jesus was simply saying was, just be ready to, to tell the story. Tell them, tell them what happened. But there's another thing for Christians too. When we, 
when we talk about witnessing, we witness the events of what we talked about in the creed tonight, that Jesus died and he suffered and then he was raised from the dead. But we also witness not just about past events, we actually witness about um, what Jesus is doing in the current moment in history. Because the resurrection of Jesus was not simply some kind of past event, but actually the cross and resurrection, as Christians understand it, is this um, trans kind of historical event. It, It transcends time. And it's something that impacts everything now. And so he says, you're going to need a power. And so the power we learn is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say a couple things here. And the first thing is this. When we talk about this power, we cannot remove power from what Jesus said like two sentences earlier, which was, I am going to die and be resurrected from the dead. We can't remove the power that Jesus talks about from Jesus' death. The power, anytime we talk about power, including the power of the Spirit, we have to understand it as like this cross-shaped, there's a word for, word for that cruciform type power. And so we, we need to understand this. Um, the second thing is that the Spirit is with us witnessing to what God has done, but is also with us witnessing to what God is doing in the present moment. Because God is alive and active. Like otherwise, we might as well not be here, Right? God is alive and active and doing things by the power of the Spirit. So David Fish said, said this. He said, God's presence is not always obvious. He requires witnesses. There's that word again, right? God comes humbly in Christ. And so he so loves us, he never imposes himself on us. Presence is how God works, but he requires a people tending to his presence to make his presence visible for all to see. I actually love this idea of tending to the presence of God, that when we begin to recognize something about God's moving, we tend to that. So in a sense, we are a people who keep the memory of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus alive. But, and this is crucial, um, the cross and resurrection are also a current reality. And so sometimes the presence of the crucified and risen Jesus begins to be at work uh, among us. And it begins to be at work for people who don't know how to name it, right? They begin to sense like something weird is happening here, but I don't know how to name it. And so David Fitch, he talks about this over and over again about God opening space. And I love that concept. He says, oftentimes God begins to open space between you and another person. And that space begins to open up and the presence of God begins to do something. Maybe you've experienced this before where you're talking with somebody and suddenly you sense like, I think God's doing something here. I'm not doing something. I'm not making anything happen. And you don't have to make anything happen. Like if you hear nothing else tonight, when it comes to evangelism and mission, you don't have to make anything happen. Period. But God often begins to make something happen, our job is simply to be a witness to it. So um, I had, uh, a few years ago, one of our transgender students at the U of C um, came to talk to me and was interested in a program that we were doing and told me this crazy story that um, they said, okay, so I'm, this person was of a different religion, okay? And they said that they were at this um, club on campus for queer students. So you have a transgender student from another religion, queer club on campus, and they're meeting, and 
they told me, we were praying the Lord's Prayer together. And I'm not even, like, I'm not Christian, I don't understand all that stuff, but I will tell you, Phil, when we were praying the Lord's Prayer together, I got hit with a power. Literally, a power shot through my body. I could feel it, like something was going through my body. And then they said, I don't know what that was about. So my job here, guess what I didn't do? I didn't make a power shoot through that person's body. I wasn't even in the room, right? Um, All that I was to do, because God had opened up that space between us, was that I was to bear witness to what God was doing. And I can bear witness to what God was doing, actually, even without thinking that God has to now convert this person in this moment. And this is the other thing that we do, is we we then insist that, okay, God is doing something, I know how this is going to go. No, we do not. Our job is also not to know how things are going to go. Our job is to bear witness to what they are experiencing in in that moment. And so I think that witness is actually a really beautiful word. Um, But you know, other words have crept into our vocabulary. And I think some of these words are problematic. And they're actually not biblical. Um, How many of you have heard about winning someone for Jesus? Yeah? Okay, winning someone for Jesus. I have a problem uh, with this. And I've probably used it a ton in my life. So if like you use this regularly, don't feel bad. I did too. Um, <clears throat> the problem is, and I reject it because of this, is that it is not my job to win. Because Jesus has already won. Jesus has won the hearts of people, so we don't need to go and win the hearts of anybody. Hear me really clearly. It is your job to convert no one. And it is my job to convert no one. We can, it is not our job to convert people. It is our job to be witnesses to what God is doing because it is God who converts people. And so I want to insist on like the language, on good language, of using the language of, of bearing witness to what God is doing instead of winning. Because winning is kind of colonial language, isn't it? We're going to go in and we're going to win. We're going to go take the city. We're going to like, all, we use all these things and I've used them a lot, right? Often with a loud voice. But I'm like, I'm not sure that that's what mission and evangelism actually is. Because if we focus on winning, people become, again, projects, don't they? Instead of becoming actual people in front of us with whom God may open space between us for us to share in the kingdom. So I want to briefly look at at, uh, two passages of scripture super quickly. Um, I think super quickly. (laughs) Um, The first one is the Tower of Babel narrative. Okay. I think that this is a largely misunderstood story. Um, How many of you understand the story and it is totally okay, guilt-free, this is how I understood this story most of my life. There were a bunch of people that were kind of arrogant. They're building this thing going to heaven, and God got upset and went, look, they're arrogant, and they're using new technology, or like however you heard that part of the story. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to send language as a punishment to confuse the people, because, hey, if everybody speaks the same language, well, who knows what they can do, right? And so God sends language as punishment. It's just the general understanding that you've had of this story. 
I think that this story is actually wrong. <laughs> I think that interpretation of the story is wrong. Um, I was listening to this interview uh, by a guy named Juno Diaz, who has been interviewed by Krista Tippett, not a Christian podcast. They often talk about religious things. But this guy, Juno Diaz, says this. He said, well, I mean, shoot, it's a question that has uh, bedeviled the new world and bedeviled societies for a long time. I mean, shoot, we've got the Babel myth at the heart of the Bible, <coughs> the idea that God struck down humanity by making them more diverse. Think about that for a minute. This is how many of us have understood this story. God punishes us by giving us diversity, right? So he laughs and says, only a kind of obsessive monoculture would think that's a terrible thing. But you know, so it goes. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting about this. this. This takes place in Genesis 11, and we read from there tonight. What's interesting is that in the previous chapter, chapter 10, Genesis 10, we're told an interesting little detail. It says, um, from these maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. Well, this is weird because in Genesis 11, we're told the whole world had one speech. But now we're told a chapter earlier that there actually was already nations and they all had their own language. So, why does chapter 10 tell us that there are people who live uh, in various clans and they all have their own language? Uh, something else must be going on. So there's this one scholar who asks this question. She says, Monica Melanchthon, uh, I don't know how you say that. Um, <laughs> is it possible, she says, she's looking at this text, she goes, is it possible for the common language here to be deemed as the language of the oppressor. Well, this is interesting. Subjugated communities often internalize the language, the symbol, and the metaphor of the oppressor. She's asking, you know, rather than understanding this one language here in Genesis 11 to mean that there weren't actually languages yet, especially since we learn in Genesis 10 that there were, is it possible that an oppressor was on the scene who forced people to speak only one language? And interestingly, there's, actually, there's historical evidence that says that this is exactly what was happening. So during this time period, um, the Assyrians began to conquer other lands. And what happened when, people, when they would conquer lands? They would go, they would say, okay, this land is now ours. They would take people, right? Take them from their own land and they would then force them. They're like, okay, forget your old customs, forget your old things, your own language. You're now a Assyrians. You're going to speak the language um, that we speak and do the things that we do. So they found these two like cylinders with writing on them from this exact time period, from this, this time period. And here's one of them. It said this, Ashurbanipal II, okay, beautiful name. Um, you can think of that someday, you know, when you're ready to have children. Ashurbanipal II. Um, Ashurbanipal II was the ruler, and here's what it says. Uh, made, made, important word, the totality of all people speak one speech. His sovereign approach made the unruly and ruthless kings one speech from the rising of the sun to its setting. So in other words, he gathered all these people. He said, we have one language now, okay? Here's, an, here's another inscription that was found. Populations of the four world quarters with strange tongues and incompatible speech, whom I had taken his booty at the command of Asher, which I'm assuming is Asher Banapal II, of course, 
Uh, my Lord, by might of my scepter, I caused, again, it's like I'm made, right? I caused to accept a single speech. So what's fascinating in this text is that we have the Assyrians who are building an empire. They're capturing people from other nations. And what did they do when, when they captured them? They forced them to leave all the things behind. It's much the same as when children uh, were sent to residential schools and they said, you're no longer allowed to speak your language. You're no longer allowed to you know, do your, your things. We're going to civilize you now. This is the same thing that was happening here. And it's uh, what a guy named Gogi Wathiango calls, he's a, he's a uh, Kenyan writer, a cultural bomb. <clears throat> and he says this, the effect of a cultural bomb is to annihilate a people's belief in their names, in their languages, in their environment, in their heritage of struggle, in their unity, in their capacity, and ultimately in themselves. It makes them see their past as one wasteland of non-achievement, and it makes them want to distance themselves from that wasteland. It's a, it's a means of humiliating people and trying to erase their past. And essentially, I think what we've begun to learn about what happened in Genesis 11 is that this is what was happening. So when God sent language, God wasn't actually sending language like language and diversity was a punishment. What God was doing was actually judging the Assyrians for their imperialism. And so you have a, a Jewish scholar, Abraham Heschel, he just says it really clearly. He said, Babel is a critique of imperialism. Now, why am I telling you all this and going through this history? Because <clears throat> I think that many of us automatically associate colonialism and evangelism or colonialism and missions. And it's important for us as Christians to see that actually very, very early on in the Bible, God was against colonialism. God was against imperialism. And so it is okay if you have this thing of like, I don't want to go, I, I think we've done some harm, and I feel like if, when I come to the word evangelism and mission, you can talk about opening space, you can talk about all these things, but what I'm nervous of is going out and making people like us. And if that's you, then you need to know that God is on your side. Because God has been against these things from the beginning and has judged these things when they, when they took place. So growing up, I heard a lot of sermons on Acts chapter 2, and this is the other text that we heard tonight. Um, I probably heard more about this than, than any other. Um, but what I've missed, and one of the things that I think that with Pentecostals um, that we've done with almost everything that we've encountered, and I believe in, in the things that we've encountered, but we mislocated the power of the thing that we encountered. And so... For, uh, for me growing up, when we would pray for people to speak in tongues, it was like, when you speak, you will receive power, okay? And so power was then located like maybe in the hands of the prayer or in the mouth of the person speaking in tongues. What's fascinating um, about what happens in Acts 2 is that power actually seems to be located in the ears of the hearers, which is an interesting thing. It was not simply that the spirit is coming just so he can empower you and you're going to go out and be super forces in the world and win everybody for Jesus and take the city, right? No, you're going to be, you'll be, you'll be given power, but it's a specific kind of power. And actually, you're going to bear witness because the spirit's going to open space all over the place. And now watch what the spirit does. And so in this place, we had all these different people from different places and 
there's this crowd that gathers and people are suddenly speaking in tongues, which is weird. Even if you're Pentecostal, this is weird, right? You're suddenly speaking in a language you do not know. <coughs> but what happens here, and here's where we see, by the way, so I grew up thinking that Babel was a reversal of, uh, of or Acts 2, Pentecost was a reversal of Babel. Now I actually see them as doing the same thing where language and diversity is the gift <laughs> and is the thing that God is working for. And so what happens is the people are speaking in tongues and the hearers go, hold on one second. We understand what these people are saying and we know that they don't know what they're saying. So if I'm saying something and I don't understand it, but you're understanding what I'm saying, who at this point has the agency? You, right? The Spirit is at work in your ears to understand I may be receiving the Spirit, but God is doing something and giving you agency, giving you power to understand. So interestingly, here in this thing where they're declaring the wonders of God, agency actually seems to be more in the ears of the hearer than in the mouth of the speaker. And so what happens is they receive this gift, they say this thing, right? They say, uh, what does this mean? They, it says they were perplexed because they, they're like, something strange is going on here. What does this mean? And so the Holy Spirit was enabling people to speak in tongues, but the Holy Spirit was also enabling these tongues to be the native tongue of the speaker, which is a beautiful thing. This is very much not the Assyrian agenda. This is... God caring about people and their very cultures and letting the gospel be known to them in their own native tongue, in their own culture, and in their own way. And so this is much of what God does here. Now, to use Bob's words, there's much to be said here. But alas, we need, <laughs> we need to come to a close. Um, suffice it to say that what the, part of what the Spirit's doing here is affirming people's differences. And is proclaiming the gospel and the power of God in a way that makes sense to them in their own culture and in their own tongue. And here's the difference between us feeling like we need to go and make something happen. And again, this is where I think many of us Pentecostals, again, mislocated the power. <laughs> we thought if we sang loud enough and did this and that and this and that, then the spirit, and, and many of us, not just Pentecostals, I think we do this. We're going to like praise our way into the presence of God. Whereas here, all they did, it's a go and wait. And they're like, okay. So they go and they wait. And the spirit does this crazy thing. And then what happens? The people say, we don't know what this means. Which is very much like the transgender student who said to me, I'm hit with the power, but I don't, I don't know what that was about. And so to me, this is what it is to bear witness When the Spirit opens a space, and you don't have to open the space, when the Spirit opens a space, you know what my job is? Um, my job is simply to bear witness to what God is doing in that moment. And that when I'm asked, I can, say, I can tell you about the God who you are experiencing. I can tell you what I believe you're experiencing in this moment. Um, 
And I think if we, when we begin to understand mission and evangelism in that way, of just paying attention to the other person, we used to talk about friendship evangelism. Friendship evangelism was super problematic because it was like, we're going to become friends with you so we can win you to Jesus. Okay? Uh, as opposed to, we're going to be friends to you because, we, because I like you and I, I find something good in friendship. And, oh my goodness, we're friends and wow, is the spirit opening space here? I think I can speak into it. And so I grew up, like I told you, never feeling like I knew when to say something. Um, I was always afraid of like, I know I'm supposed to say something. I don't know when. It feels awkward. And then I feel guilt and all this kind of stuff. Um, but a few years ago, I started spending a significant amount of time um, with a few of our Muslim students. <clears throat> and you know, I, I still had some of that stuff from my upbringing uh, when I was meeting with them. And so I, there was a few times where I would be with them and feeling like, okay, I should probably, you know, am I being a really, am I being a good Christian chaplain if I'm not really doing anything now, and so I would just start to go down the road a little bit, you know, like whatever the road is, Romans Road or whatever, <laughs> not really, but, you know, just like, okay, I'm going to just say something, and whenever it felt forced, e even to me, when I felt like I need to make something happen, I immediately saw them shut down, and I felt uncomfortable, they felt uncomfortable, okay, and so what I've had to learn how to do is to just realize, you know what, the Spirit, Jesus loves this person more than I do, even. And I really love this person. And so I can relax, and if God opens space, and maybe he'll do it with me, and maybe he'll do it with someone else, and I'm not even going to worry about it, because it's not my job to convert. It's my job to bear witness. And so when this happened, I began to all of a sudden have these amazing open spaces where you know, they, would say, they would say something and I, I would go, you know, that's an interesting thing you're saying there. I, and I'm going to speak a bit from a Christian perspective here, and I would just share something. And they would say, oh, wow. <clears throat> but I would really, again, give the agency in there, in, in, to them. Much in the same way as in the book of Acts, the agency was more in the hearer than the speaker. And so I would meet with these people over and over again. And we would talk about, you know, like, whatever, problems with your girlfriend or, or like, whatever, for 45 minutes. I thought, okay, well, it's going to be a meeting like that. And they'd say, by the way, Phil, I was wondering this week, uh, you Christians, you believe that God is a God of forgiveness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do too. Um, we don't have the assurance that you do, I get that, but like, if we believe that God is a God of forgiveness, and you believe that God is a God of forgiveness, how come your God has to die in order for us to be forgiven? It's like, oh, that's a good question. How much time we got? Let's go for a walk, right? And so, um, but it was at their invitation because the Spirit began to stir things in them. And, and so this is what I've learned to trust more and more. I'm, I've just relaxed with them. Because I believe that all we, our only role, your role with your friends who, is, who are not Christian, is not to make something happen. 
you do not have to make a moment happen with them. You pray for them, and then you be a friend in the way that Jesus was a friend before he died by, hey, let's walk and talk, tell about a story. I'm about to die, so let's talk about, you know, a woman needing a whole bunch of dough and this guy who threw manure around a tree. <laughs> and we'll see what the Spirit does. And so, rather than us abandoning mission, um, or rather than mission or evangelism being this big burden that you bear, I just want to invite you that you are quite simply witnesses of what God has done and what God is doing in Jesus. And I believe that if we become a people of prayer, and sometimes even if we're not a people of prayer because God cares, God will begin to open spaces and we will begin to say, oh, I think I do have a name for that. And it's, that's it. So unburden yourselves. But I will say one final thing. <laughs> and that's a... Um, Mission and evangelism is not without risk. Um, and the reason it's not without risk is because God not only wants to do something in the other person, but God very much wants to do something in you. Leslie Newbigin uh, spent some time with Newbigin here recently. He says this, he says, obedient witness, there's a word again, okay? Obedient witness to Christ means that whenever we come with another person, Christian or not, into the presence of the cross, we are prepared, we, not they, this is where we've gone wrong in thinking we need to go to them and tell them about the cross, whereas he's saying, oh, no, 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 Jesus is wanting to tell us about the cross here too. He said, we are prepared to receive judgment and correction. When you're with somebody, Christian or not Christian, we need to be prepared to receive judgment and correction. Listen to this. To find that our Christianity hides within its appearance of obedience, the reality of disobedience. And each meeting with a non-Christian partner in dialogue, therefore, puts my own Christianity at risk. And if the risk isn't real, then the witness isn't real, I don't think. And Newbigin would go on to say, what God really wants here is to convert both people, both the person that you're talking to, but also you, and to change your heart and your mind. So the risk in witness and in mission is not simply whether the other person is converted or not, but it's whether we are converted or not. And so I actually want to call you into mission for your own sake even. That as you begin to share your faith, <clears throat> Think about the question my, my friend asked me, you know, about Jesus. That's a tough question. And what you will find is that people who are not Christian usually ask much better questions <laughs> and much more difficult questions than people who are Christians. And the reason is because they have no inside agenda. They have no inside kind of ties. They're like, I literally have nothing to lose. So I'm going to ask you this because this seems like madness. And sometimes we are confronted like, ah, I don't know. And it's okay not to know. But this is the working of the Spirit in our own lives too, to refine us and to shape us and to change our minds and to draw us closer to Jesus. So, um, so my prayer is that you will actually regain a passion for mission, but without 
the unnecessary burden of what mission actually isn't. Um, and that you'll be changed and converted, if I can use that word, as you witness. And so, Sarah, come on up. Um, I'll have you close in prayer tonight. Or I guess it's Logan. Um, you don't look like Sarah. Um, <clears throat> you know, here, here's one of the things I, I, I've noticed, if I can say, I'll just say this pretty clearly, okay? Uh, those of us in UCM, we work up in the Faith and Spirituality Center. How many have been to the Faith and Spirituality Center? Okay, a few of us. Um, do you know who the last people to go to the Faith and Spirituality Center are, typically? This is not, I'm not putting a guilt trip on you, don't, you don't have to show up tomorrow. But are like evangelical and Pentecostal Christians, okay? We have people from all different religions uh, and non-religions and, you know, just people from all walks of life who go up there and who are interested and open in talking about faith. And we're like the last group to show up. And I think the reason is because we're afraid. We don't know what they're going to say, and, and they're different from us and all these kinds of things. But what if God will actually use them to refine your own faith and will use you to open up their hearts uh, toward Jesus? You don't have to convert anybody. Not the reason for being there. But what if God calls you to be with the people who are different than you and who will open you up in ways that you wouldn't be opened up in other spaces? So... Um, so be engaged. My, it's just my, my encouragement to you. Be engaged in the mission of God in evangelism. Um, not in the weird, you got to go change the world. No, just go be witnesses in the authority and power of the Spirit as God opens space. So that's it.